following message is from Narrative Church, a Lutheran church located in Williamson County, Texas. For more information, go to www.narrative.church. And they basically are waving them in the air, throwing them on the ground as this incredible moment of what's happening with Jesus. And I thought, we do this as people all the time, right? Someone does something good, throw them a parade, right? You win the Super Bowl, parade. You win an Olympic sport, parades all over the place. But there is one place where I think iconically, we as Americans think of parades, and that's right here. This is, let me get it right, the it had Canyon of Heroes. I was going to say Canyon of Champions. That was wrong. Travis knew it, so I wanted to make sure that I got it right. So it's the Canyon of Heroes. It is this man-made canyon in New York City along Broadway where they throw ticker tape parades. Now, I know all my high schoolers who like to remind me that they were born before I graduated high school. You guys know what ticker tape is, right? Yep, see, there we go. Ticker tape was the old school way that you found out what your stocks were doing, right? So that ticker tape would be in all these Wall Street offices and it would just tick off how the stocks were doing. And so then you just ended up with all this extra paper, the ticker tape. And so what they would do is they would transport this ticker tape over, they would throw open the windows and throw the paper out as streamers. Now here's some fun facts. The first ticker tape parade was in 1886 on October 28th celebrating the Statue of Liberty. So when the Statue of Liberty was completed, they threw a parade. Really hard to move the Statue of Liberty down from the island out, but okay. 1924 was the first time athletes were honored with a ticker tape parade. The athletes of the Paris Olympic Games, that's when Broadway, this section of Broadway, became known as the Canyon of Heroes. And in fact, I didn't know this as I was looking it up. They actually, as you would walk that section of Broadway, they have a list of the ticker tape parades embedded in the Canyon of Heroes. 5,438 tons is the amount of ticker tape thrown at the parade in the Canyon of Heroes at the end of World War II in 1945. Wouldn't you love to be New York City Department of Parks <laughs> cleaning up after the ticker tape parade at the end of the Second World War? And 206 is the number of parades, the last one being in 2018 for the women's championship soccer team that I think that was a World Cup that they won. We love throwing parades. We love celebrating people who have done great things. And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, just as we today would pull out all the ticker tape, today, you know, it would probably be an iPhone parade. You're just chucking your iPhone out the window, right? Because that's where we get our stock info. But we love to celebrate people who have been our heroes. And so too, this happens with Jesus as he comes in to Jerusalem. We're going to start at the end and then work back to the beginning. So verse 8 here, Mark eleven eight, 8, and many spread their cloaks on the road 
and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So just like a ticker tape parade, they go and grab what's close by. Right? If you were to look at pictures of the Holy Land, you would see a lot of palm trees or kind of leafy kind of farons that they would use to celebrate. And they're throwing them and their jackets on the ground in this way of respect for Jesus. You know, here it would probably be us cutting branches off of, you know, some trees we had around. Maybe it's throwing some pecans. Because listen, the palm frond industry is a racket. Because every year I go to order palm fronds and I want to get the big, nice ones, right? That you got branches and we're really going to get into it. And every year I go, I'm not paying $25 for four palm fronds. So if you've got a palm at your house and you go, you know, every year, this is about the time I cut it back, you let me know. Do not throw those fronds away. I will take them. Because I get it. We're up here saying, Hosanna, you know, we got the one thing. Let's get the fronds, right? Things pastors think about, right? I'm sure all of you this week were going, oh, I really want the big palm fronds. But they grabbed what was close by. Just like the ticker tape parade, they grabbed what they had to celebrate. To the point even where they took off their cloaks. Listen, I love me some Jesus. Probably not taking off my shirt and throwing it in the dirt. That's some extra celebrating. That's exciting. They were pumped. And this isn't the first time this happens. In fact, it's not the first time it happens in Scripture. In 2 Kings 9.13, as a king is being well, is coming into the city, it says, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So they're doing what they do when a king is around. They're doing what they do when they see someone of great stature and of authority. Then they say something interesting. They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here they're quoting from Psalm 118.25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So when we look at this piece of Scripture, that save us right there is Hosanna. So that is that Hebrew word, save us. And what's interesting is that what they're quoting here from Psalm 18, that they would have known this verse, that as they're saying it, this is, let's get nerdy, right? This is second person imperative. So what they are saying is they are saying, you save us us. They're looking at Jesus, and they're not saying, hey, could you? Maybe if you've got some time, you know, could you pencil us in between, like, turning over tables in the temple and making fun of the Pharisees? Like, could you throw in saving us somewhere in there? No, they're saying, save us. You do it. You're the one. Make it happen. When was the last time you prayed a prayer and you said, Lord, you do it? And not just you do it, but I, I know you're going to do it. I'm telling you to do it. That seems a little arrogant. 
But here it is in the Psalms. Save us now. Not a question, not a cry of desperation, but instead, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a confession of who they see Jesus as. They believe him to be the promised Messiah. But then they kind of change up the wording here. Like they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they say, in verse 10, blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna. Save us now. It's interesting that they add this. The kingdom of our father, David. Now this could be a bunch of people going, yeah, we understand that the Messiah comes from the house of David, so we know the kingdom's coming. But this is the crowd that on Sunday is declaring Hosanna and on Friday is yelling, crucify him. There are going to be people from this crowd in those temple courts yelling the same thing. So how in five days does that change? And I think that line there, the kingdom of our father David, is an insight. Because they're looking and saying, aha, here comes the Messiah who's going to come back to reestablish our empire. Here comes the Messiah who is God is on his side so he will lead the armies of heaven against our oppressors. He will wipe out the Romans and then from Rome we can move into Persia and down into Egypt and we can take this land that was promised to us and great will our nation be. And it's fascinating because Jesus for the entirety of Mark keeps looking at people and saying, don't tell anyone what I've done. Now they do anyways, right? It's the worst kept secret. But every time Jesus looks at someone and says, no, no, don't share. Don't share what I've done for you. But they go out and share anyway. So he is kept quiet, but here he comes in and the crowds are declaring him the Messiah and he doesn't quiet them. But they're looking for a different kind of Messiah. They're looking for that reestablishment of the earthly kingdom. So let's go back to the start. So verse 1, Mark 11, 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, what are you why you are doing this, say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. If you've been in the church a long time, you've probably heard this story. If you're new to church, this is weird. Right? This is one of those moments that what would it be like if we're all sitting here or maybe we're hanging out in the front yard of our street and we see someone walk up to our neighbor's car and they start popping the lock and hot wiring it. We're going to go, excuse me, glad you're here in our neighborhood. What are you doing? You know what response I'm not going to accept as a good neighbor? Ah, the Lord said he has need of it. Oh, did he? Did the Lord tell you that? That you needed this F-150? Is that what he said? 
yeah, not going not gonna to let that happen. But here, the disciples come in. And man, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm praying. Like, you know, there are sure, I'm sure there are different tasks that everyone's got to do as a disciple. And I'm the guy in the corner that I know when this comes up, Jesus is looking at me going, hey, go and tie that colt. I'm like, right. I hear you, Jesus, needs to happen. What if, hear me out, let's make Peter do it. I don't want to walk into someone's front yard and be like, ah, this colt, the Lord says he has need of it, right? And just, okay, right? And I love also, tell them he'll bring it back immediately. Like, remind them the Lord is a good borrower, right? You know, and I know this, right? I know there are certain tools that I have. I go, ooh, I got to get that back to whoever I borrowed it from. But there's this weird moment of the cult where it's like this foolishly miraculous thing that the people just let them walk off with the cult. And so they take it and they go, but there's an important reason. And they went away and they found the colt tied outside the door in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. Minor miracle. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And it's fascinating. We have to ask, why a colt? Jesus is very specific, right? He doesn't say, hey, go into town, find a colt, find a horse, whatever. Just bring it. He goes, no, bring me that colt. Bring it to me. There's a lot of reasons for this. But about 550 years before Jesus goes into Jerusalem, there's a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet at a time where Jerusalem is being rebuilt. They have come back from the Babylonian captivity. So the Old Testament shortened into two minutes. God tells the people, follow me. You don't need a king. They go, sweet, give us a king. They go, he goes, no, 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 you don't need a king. They go, awesome, give us a king. He goes, I hear you, you don't need it. They go, right, God, king. So God finally goes, all right, you wanted this, here you go. Because his promise to them was, I will be your king and you will be my people. But they look around them at the nations and they say, ooh, we like what kings do for these nations because they get stuff. Kings go and conquer things and then they get stuff. We want stuff. Give us a king. So God finally goes, all right. Parents, I'm sure you know that one child who says, I want it, I want it, I want it. And you just finally get worn down. You go, you're going to love this kid. So Jesus, or God looks at them and says, okay, here's your king. They start with Saul. Saul goes a little insane, so then they get David. David, who we love to talk about, man after God's own heart, not a great guy. Murdered a bunch of people. Was very lustful. Had a lot of issues. But the promise was the Messiah was going to come from his house. Well, his sons and their offspring end up walking further and further and further from God to the point where God said, listen, I promised you that if you wanted a king where it was going to lead was away from me and towards invasion. And so the Assyrians and the Babylonians conquer Israel. They take the people out. The people make it back. They rebuild Jerusalem. But then the Greeks come, and now the Romans. And so they have lived under a governing force for a long time time, but in the middle of it, a prophet shows up, Zechariah, to give them hope. 
And Zechariah 9.9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. And so in this time where Jerusalem has been sacked and destroyed, Zechariah comes and he prophesies that there is a king who is coming that you can rejoice about. And he will come and he will restore to you double. And so the people would have known this prophecy. They would have been thinking of this. But they don't understand that restored double is not an earthly kingdom, but is instead the kingdom that is to come. It's really interesting what Zechariah says here because Jesus says, get me the colt. So he's declaring something. So Zechariah 9, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is important because kings didn't ride donkeys. Kings rode horses. I don't know if you've put a donkey next to a horse lately. One looks cool, and one you go, well, you could only afford a donkey, huh? Right, like a donkey and a horse are two very different things. A horse transports you. A donkey is your animal of burden. You throw your packs on it so that you don't have to carry them. A king rode in on a war horse when he conquered. A servant rides in on a colt. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah paints this picture for us of the king who rides on the colt, that he is a king who will come in. He will break the bow. He will destroy the chariot and the war horse. That's like if I were saying today, he would snap the assault rifle. He would destroy the tank and the fighter plane. This was military tech of the day. A good chariot is your tank. A war horse gets you where you need to go. The bow is your ranged attack. But this king is coming and he is bringing peace to the nations from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The people, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, are looking for the king who does these things, but does it for them. They want him to destroy those things of their enemy. They're not realizing that he's coming to destroy them all. That as he enters the city, his goal is not 
an Israelite nation that rules over all. His goal is destruction of sin, death, and the devil. That those things that would destroy us are now gone. Verse 11, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. A people who had been pulled into exile, who had been thrown into prisons. A waterless pit seems like a terrible place. But he says, I will free those prisoners. Then verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Return to your stronghold. This is a call to return to the Lord, to turn back to Him and His ways. To remember that your stronghold is not in the nation, it is not in the military might, it is not in the power of this earth, but instead the stronghold is the Lord of the universe who created all things. Return to Him. And then I love this line, prisoners of hope. It's an incredibly poetic idea. Prisoners of hope. To be so deeply in the Lord that our prison is in fact our hope. That we are buried in Him so deeply that as prisoners, all we can have is hope. That there's this promise come by the covenant of the blood that even in this time as we wait, as we long for that time, that we are prisoners of hope. But somehow, the crowds on Palm Sunday missed it. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are declaring it. They are looking. They are joyful that Jesus is finally entering the city. But they're missing the fact that He has come as the king in Zechariah on a colt to be the one to bring peace not only to them but to the world. You see, they had gotten so focused on this idea that the Messiah was coming for them, that the Messiah was coming and that they were a protected people of God because the Messiah was coming for them. But what they didn't realize is what God was saying is, no, the Messiah is coming from you. You are blessed and you are my people because I have chosen that from you will come the Messiah, the one to redeem the world, not just my chosen people. Because the point in the beginning, in Genesis 3, when God makes the first promise of the plan of Jesus that is to come, when he looks at the serpent and he says, you will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. When he says that, the plan has always been to be the redemption of the world. Not just a certain people. The people of Israel were blessed. They were protected. They were honored by God because from them would come the Messiah. And what he's trying to get them to see is that this redemption will be for all people. Not just one group. 
But their focus, time and time again, as we've seen throughout the book of Mark, is to see a Messiah who's coming for their gain and their power. They're prisoners of their own will. They're prisoners of self. And I wonder how many times we are the same. How many times do we as Christians look and say, Lord, save us. But here's my reasons why I want you to save us. Lord, save me for me, for what I want, not what you want. How often do we look at the world around us and we live in a fear because we think the world is changing and everything's falling apart? It's the same world spinning at the same rate it always has. It's just our hundred years in it. But how often do we get so focused on self that we become the crowd that on Sunday shouts Hosanna and on Friday shouts crucify him? How often do we look and we miss that Jesus is riding on a colt, a symbol that says, I'm going to be the Prince of Peace, the King who has come to restore the world, not just you. But we get so caught up and he's finally here. He's going to give me what I want. That's why I love looking at Palm Sunday. Because I can slow myself down and go, Lord, where are those places in my life that I'm a part of the crowd wanting you to be the one to come in and take care of my enemies so I can be glorified? Instead of looking and saying, when I say, save us now, when I cry Hosanna, that Hosanna can only lead to your death. See, I don't blame the crowd for on Sunday yelling Hosanna and on Friday yelling crucify him because without both, we wouldn't have the redemption we have. We wouldn't have the king who comes on the colt for us, for the world. But the question is, now that we know that king and who he is, now we know the good that he has done, the cross that he is going to for us, will we live as prisoners of self that lose sight of this idea that when we say save us, we want save us for our prosperity, save us for our ability to be right, save us for us to have a nation now, an earthly nation where our power and our authority rule and reign. Or can I come in humility and, Lord, say, save me now? Because if I were in charge, it would all fall apart. Save me now, not for the kingdom of self, where I'm a prisoner of self. But, Lord, save me now to be a prisoner of hope. To be a prisoner of hope that says, Lord, there's nothing but you. As we as Christians walk in the world, I hope more and more we seek to be prisoners of hope. 
And I hope that we're prisoners of hope for ourselves. I was um, on a call this week with some friends, and a buddy of mine who's a poet said it incredibly well. We were talking about how, how do we as people of faith even walk in this world sometimes? And he goes, well, God told us to love three people. Him, ourselves and our neighbors, and our enemies. So if we look at that, you may count it as four. We're counting the middle one as two, as one. But that was a brilliant thing to me. God's called me to do that. If I'm a prisoner of hope, I'm looking and saying, listen, I'm going to love the Lord for what he's done for me, that he let me shout, Hosanna, save me, and then he still went to the cross, knowing that when I said, save me now, when I wanted that, when I needed that, and he knew the cross was the only way to make that happen, he still rode into Jerusalem. That he didn't turn around and go, nah, not these guys. He still goes to the cross knowing that my Hosanna will turn into a crucify, he still goes to the cross for me. So I seek to love him more and more. As a prisoner of hope, I seek to love myself and love my neighbors. And I say that as those are the people that it can be a little easier to love, right? And by love of self, here's what I'm meaning. You were bought at a price. We live in a time period where we can get online and immediately realize everything that's wrong with us very quickly. That's something we as humanity have always been able to do, but now we are constantly bombarded by it. When was the last time you were talking about a product you liked? And next thing you know, it's on your internet as something and you're going, they're listening. We are constantly bombarded with this idea that we just need this to be better. We just need this to be a full person. We just need, we just need, we just need. And what I'm not saying is it's not about us growing and learning and being sanctified and saying, hey, if we want to do these things, that's great. But at the end of the day, the Lord didn't come and die for you when you were better. He didn't come to die for you when you said, listen, once I've been on Weight Watchers for another 10 months, then I'll be lovable. Listen, the Lord loves you now. So when we talk about this, this loving ourselves, that's how Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. It's about learning to say, I want to see myself as the Lord sees me because that actually enables me to follow him more because I don't look and say, I'm a poor, wretched sinner. I say, I'm a poor, wretched sinner, but man, the Savior has done some work on me. Because if the Savior's working on me, and boy, do I want to go and love my neighbors. I want to take care of them. I want to serve them. I want to love them because the Lord loved me. And finally, as prisoners of hope, we love our enemies. Your enemies could take on a lot of different forms. Maybe it's that person at work that you're just like, if they never showed up again, my life would be so much better. Maybe it's a literal next-door neighbor who just is always getting on to you. Maybe it's those people who think differently than you politically, who hold to different values, who hold to values that are 
contrary to what we see the Lord telling us our values. Guess what? That falls into an enemy category. You know what that means? You love them. And I'm not saying we've built this idea in our culture of, on the one hand, one group calls it tolerance, and on the other hand, one group calls it tough love, and it's basically our way to just yell at you and tell you you're wrong. We need to be a people that says, listen, we so deeply love you, we disagree with you, we do all those things, but as prisoners of hope, we know that disproving you, that proving you wrong, does not grow the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God grows when people look and they see, I need to be saved. And Jesus is the one who does it. You see, the crowd that day was looking for the Romans to be destroyed and wiped out. In the book of Acts, do you know how many stories we get, not just of Romans, but of military leaders in the Roman legions who are converted and their entire families come to the Lord. Prisoners of hope love their enemies because they want to see their enemies become their family. They want to see them in a kingdom that far surpasses any earthly kingdom that we could be here or enjoy. So this Palm Sunday, I'd invite you to slow down and see the king who rides on a colt, the king who rides in for peace, the king who rides in and is here to save you, your neighbor, and your enemy. And that even as you say, Hosanna, save me now, that the only way that can happen is for him to die rise again. My prayer for all of us this Holy Week is that we learn more and more what it means to be prisoners of hope, living in the joy of the King who rode in on a colt. That as we cried, save us now, his response was, just wait till Friday. Let's pray. Lord, let us let go of being prisoners of self, of pointing inward, of wanting more for ourselves. Lord, let us be prisoners of hope. Let us be a people who rejoice that you have saved us, that it was your death and your resurrection that has brought us new life. Lord, for those of us who are struggling with a love of self, let us see ourselves through your eyes. Let us rejoice that those who are once far off have been brought near. Lord, if we are struggling to love our neighbors, break our hard hearts to love and serve those around us. Lord, if we are struggling to love our enemies, teach us to pray for them, that they too may become our brothers and sisters. Lord, in all these things we pray, knowing that as we declare, save us now, it's not a question. It's not half-hearted. It is a declaration because you come to save us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.